I invite you to turn with me tonight to the book of 2 Peter in chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, I am uh, turning to this passage largely again in light of some of our recent studies in uh, the book of Hebrews and in regard to the challenge of uh, assurance of our salvation. Uh, First Peter, or excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one, and uh, I'm going to uh, just read verses uh, ten and eleven, and then we'll pray. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time to be together. Thank you, Father, for the joy of singing, uh, of hearing your word read, the privilege of offering prayers to the Most High God. And Lord, we do pray now that you would come and aid both in the giving and, Father, Especially we pray tonight in the receiving of the word. Father, help those who are struggling. Help those, Father, who need to begin the journey. Uh, Father, tonight that you would come and apply your word with uh, help and hope and power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, with a number of new people uh, attending our church here in recent months, I I have been asked uh, several times about the process of of membership. What do you need to do to uh, join the church? And eventually, those conversations get around to that this culminates in the writing of a testimony. We've said this many times, that testimony consists of two things. What is the gospel, number one? And then secondly, what is your experience of the gospel? So one is theological largely, and the other is to some degree autobiographical. What has God done for you in Christ, theological? And then how did you hear this message, and when did you respond? What were the events that God used in your own personal life? Now I'm going to take a riff on that and and ask you two questions. And the first is this, how did you become a Christian? So think about that. Take a moment, answer that in your mind. How did you become a Christian? Now, second question is this. How do you know you're a Christian? You see that there are two different things, in a sense? How did you become a Christian? Well, everyone here who professes faith should be able to answer that question in a way that exalts the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did you become a Christian can be answered in ways that essentially have nothing to do with you. Yet there is a biography here, but it's not because you did anything. The circumstances of your life are different than, I did this to earn my salvation. You did not cause yourself to be raised from the spiritual dead. You did not make yourself born from above. God did that. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, in regard to the second question, how do you know that you are uh, a Christian? Well, one way of answering that is to focus upon the reality of the experience of the first question. That is, I know whom I have believed. 
And the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I've done that. Therefore, I know that I am a Christian. I know because God called me. He gave me faith. He showed me the Savior. He opened my heart to the gospel. And we find biblical grounds for such an answer. But there are other times in which the answer to the question, how do you know that you are a Christian, is due to the work the Lord is currently doing in you in regard to what we call fruit. How do I know I'm a Christian? Because I see the fruit of the Spirit's work in my life. And there are times we need to look more in a more focused sense on this second aspect, because the Bible tells us that not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who has seemingly made a profession of faith is, as we have said, a possessor of that faith. And this is a text that exhorts us toward a joyful, robust assurance that though not necessary for your salvation, you can lack assurance and still go to heaven. But I trust this is something that all of us want to have. That all of us, all the days of our life, want to enjoy this sense of confidence that the God of heaven has done a work in us. I want to work our way through the opening here of Second Peter chapter 1, and I want to open it up under three headings. I want to begin by looking at our solid ground, secondly, our diligent action, and then finally, our sweet assurance. Consider, first of all, our solid ground, and it's found for us in verses 1 through 4. Follow along as I read. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by, uh, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through loss. Now, I'm not going to spend really much time at all expounding anything uh, here. I, I, I simply want to state, if you followed along there, that the grounds of our salvation are all outside of ourselves. God is our righteousness. God has given to us all things pertaining to life and to godliness. There is a knowledge of him who he called us by glory and virtue. He has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. He makes it so that we can be partakers of the divine nature. So everything that I will say tonight regarding the enjoyment of a robust assurance that will of necessity give attention to our spirit-empowered labors is in no way intended to point ourselves and, or point to ourselves and our obedience and our labors and our diligence as the source of our hope. 
The answer to those who are struggling is not going to be look to yourself, try harder, do more, add more. It will be look away from yourself to Christ. One theologian of the past, a man named Herman Witsis, said this, For our salvation depends not only on this full assurance of faith, but on our union and communion with Christ, which may remain safe and secure without that assurance. That is to say, yes, we want that, but our salvation doesn't depend on that. It depends on our union with Christ. And so again, as we have said, and I want to reiterate again, there's all the difference in the world between striving from that union, embracing the dynamics of the new life, and looking to our actions for life. From our life, laboring, and for our life are two radically different ideas. And that confusion again of justification and sanctification, which is Coming out again in certain theological quarters right now is not a small matter. This is not a niggling matter of unnecessary doctrine. We can have no true hope for the diligent action that I want to expound and the sweet assurance that flows from it if we are not united to Christ. If we do not have a righteousness from God, if grace and peace are not ours through the person and work of Jesus, then everything that I have to say tonight is ultimately going to be man-centered. That said, the focus of our text that I want to expound to us is upon our prayerful, spirit-dependent actions and activities. Again, there is a difference between a strong assurance and a weak and absent assurance is largely seen here. So let's consider now, secondly, our diligent action. Hearkening back to what he has said concerning this grace, the salvation by grace, verse 5 says, but also for this very reason, because you have escaped the corruption that is in this world, because God has been gracious to you and rescued you. For this reason, giving all diligence, he says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Now, if I were doing an exposition of Second Peter, and if we were coming in and saying we're starting uh, to look at Second Peter, we would stop here and do a rather deep dive uh, into these issues and, and see the connection as they flow one from another. Uh, but we're doing a more uh, o- overview and really trying to look at the issue of how these things tie in to our assurance tonight. Our faith, when it comes to clinging to Christ in justification, is faith that is alone. Faith alone in Christ alone. But that saving faith that we have in Christ alone does not stay alone. That faith, we believe and assert, is tied to the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. And he has, in that regeneration, given to us a new life, a new heart, a new mind, and new desires, and new powers, not simply a new record before God. 
It's not simply that all he does is declare us righteous in the sight of God. He, he changes us. Gives us a desire to be like the Lord Jesus. From the moment of our conversion, there is something of the heart that you see in Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 after the Lord Jesus appears to him. And, and what are his first words? What do you want me to do, Lord? Something of that is in us. There is a living out of the reality of the Great Commission. Disciples are made and they are baptized and then they are taught to observe or to obey or to put into practice everything that Jesus has commanded. And that's not simply the duty of the church and its officers. It reflects the desire of the new disciple. It's not just saying, hey, you just got baptized. I'm going to teach you everything that Jesus commanded. It's like, yeah, I know that's what I want. That's why I got baptized. That's why I came into the church because I want to know everything that he wants me to be and to do. So that having heard the gospel and trusted in Jesus, they want to obey him in the waters of baptism and then gather with a church where they will learn. Now again, none of this happens incidentally. It doesn't just happen. Note the language here that we have come across several times in Hebrews as well as in our reading in Deuteronomy, the language of diligence. Do this diligently. And the Bible again makes a strong distinction between those who make diligent use of means and those who merely wish or hope for something without action. And when you wish for something or hope for something without action, what you get is nothing. That's simply the reality. I sure wish I had vegetables in our garden. Did you plant anything? No, but I'm hoping and wishing. Well, expect some weeds. Solomon speaks, one of the most striking statements of this is the lazy man who has his hand in his bowl, but he won't even lift his hand. He's too lazy to do this. And the idea is that he starves with his hands and the very thing that would sustain him if he bent his elbow and if he ate. And so Peter says, also for this very reason, because God has done something gracious in you and for you, because you have escaped this corrupt world, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. This diligence speaks of a determined course of labor to strive and to do what is necessary again with the dynamics of grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, utilizing the means of grace, fellowship, the word, prayer, all of these things to put in the hard work. Self-denial and cross-bearing are of the essence of discipleship. To pray, to study, to serve, to give, to love are not again the stuff of dreams and desires but to be the reality of our actions. And so he says, being diligent, you have faith? That's great, it's wonderful. But add to that faith virtue. Virtue speaks of moral excellence, of purity, of holiness. It's the word that's used in that 
well-known passage in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, that's the word, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, think on these things. Now that takes effort. Somebody says, see, what are you thinking about? My wife does that every once in a while, maybe depending on what my face looks like. What are, you, what are you thinking about as you're driving and it's quiet for a little while? What are you thinking about? Well, to think upon the right things and not simply have a, a you know, stream of consciousness where you go from your eyes looking at one thing to another and you're bing and bopping all over the place. But to actually say, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about things that are true thinking about things that are noble and, and, and that are just and pure and lovely and of good report. If there's any virtue that is combining those things, meditate to this moral excellence that combines a putting off of gross sins and a pursuit of that which is pure, we are told furthermore to add knowledge. Now, this is a word that speaks to a deepening understanding of God and his ways. And we say that we're a disciple. Everybody says you're a Christian, you're a disciple. What does that mean, right? It means to be a learner or a student. We're to grow not only in the grace of our Lord Jesus, but in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Do you want to know him better and deeper? Do you want to know more about who he is? More about what he's like? You need to be in God's house. You need to be in God's word. You need to be around people who point you to him. And then on top of that, brethren, there are so many excellent resources that open up and open your heart to and your soul to the beauty and the glory of the person of Jesus. So this is all moving toward having a solid assurance. Then add to your faith pursuit of those things that make for holiness add to that be a learner be a disciple be a growing in the knowledge of our lord and of our savior now to this he says add to this knowledge self-control so you're building one thing on top of another add to it self-control now this is one of the fruits of the spirit it's a fascinating fruit of the spirit as one has said that you're never more full of the spirit than when you are most in control of yourself. That's an interesting thing to meditate on. There's a fascinating text in Acts, Acts chapter 24, when Paul has been arrested and uh, he's making his way ultimately to the emperor and he speaks to Felix and Drusilla upon this journey. And we read in Acts 24, verse 24, these words. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Okay? Faith in Christ. Now, as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And what I'm getting at is that there's, there's no real contradiction between saying 
He was preaching to somebody about faith in Christ and reason about righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. That is what this is what the Lord Jesus does in somebody's life when he gets a hold of him. And these are the realities that drive you to Christ. And when he heard those things, he was afraid and said, I don't want to hear this kind of teaching and preaching anymore. And I want to draw a connection here and particularly say this to some in particular here tonight. What point is knowledge of the truth if it is not accompanied by a control of your passions? I sometimes know things. I want to be very careful how I say this. Sometimes I know things about a a person's life. And then I watch their online persona. And I watch them be harsh and censorious and critical and judgmental. And I know the sins they're indulging in. And I think I understand being upset, but brother, work on yourself before you find yourself judgmental Of all of these others. It's a lot harder to put sin to death in our own lives than it is to gain knowledge. It's a lot harder to fight our sin than to read a book or take a class or have convictions about how others ought to think and live. And as we have those pursuing ministry, I want to say again if you fill your head with theology while you remain a slave to your lust, There will be a contradiction that will often lead to a great ugliness of soul. Add to your knowledge self-control. Again, I've known far too many proud men who can't conquer their own lust, judgmental to others, but easy on themselves. Now to the self-control, he says, add patience. Now the emphasis here is not so much upon patience with others. That's that's. Often what you think about when you think about patience uh, in, in, in the Bible. Uh, but this is a, a, a perseverance. It's an endurance of faith under trial and distress. One of the reasons we sang, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. And we are facing a lot now as a church. A lot of our folks are hurting in numerous ways. And the danger, the fear sometimes when hardship comes our way and when disappointment comes our way and providence is dark and God seems to be veiling his face and he doesn't seem to be answering prayer and it doesn't appear that he is as good or as powerful as he states himself to be, is to be shaken from our faith and our hope and our confidence. And we need not only to be virtuous and pursuing holiness and, 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 and knowledge and self-control, but we need to plant ourselves in the truth that God is good and does good, that is most necessary if we are to persevere. To this patience, he says, godliness. And spoken earlier in, in the chapter, verse 3, uh, one of the best-known texts, at least I quote, we quote a lot about godliness, his divine power has given to us all that pertain to life and godliness. What is that? 
Well, we've already talked about it to some degree. It's a walking in the light. It's the putting off of the old man and the putting on the new. In the right sense of the word, being like God. Now, there's a very arrogant sense in which somebody's acting like God. But this is the sense, like God in heart and actions and attitude and words. It's reflecting the character and the heart and the desires of our Father in heaven. To this, he says, brotherly affection. Taking care of each other, recognizing the bonds that join us one to another. And this is most necessary for us. There's been here this, uh, what Peter has set up to now, this, this focus on the inner life. The self-pursuing holiness and the fear of God fighting in the heart and the life. The desire to be the same man in, in, in private as you are in public, etc., But dear ones, our faith is not lived in isolation. It's lived among the brethren. And the dynamics of our faith as you study it in the word of God are so often or cannot be seen apart from one another. And he says, be affectionate toward them. Recognize that they are your family. And with all their faults and all their blots and all their blemishes... With the reality that they will at times disappoint, and that's from the elders on down, that we will disappoint. Care for them. Have them in your affections. Take them into your heart. And to this, he says, add love. So what's the difference between brotherly affection and brotherly love? It may well be what John brought out in 1 John and I could say that in two ways because Pastor John brought it out in preaching on 1 John last week. Uh, but what John the Apostle brought out in 1 John and our pastor commented on is to love not just in words but in deed and truth. Yes, feel something toward them, but do something as well. And we need to hear both sides of that because sometimes it's like, well, it's far easier to do something for them than it is to have affection for them. And sometimes we can say, hey, sorry you were starving, but I want to let you know you were in my heart. I had the means to alleviate your pain, but I like you. you know? Well, it's both of these things together. Have them in your home, in your heart, in your home. Take care of them. Supply their needs from that affectionate fountain that flows from the throne. Well, that's something of a diligent pursuit. And note here... Friends, this is, these aren't suggestions. It's like, okay, listen, what are, you, are you struggling with things? Is your life a little dull right now? Why don't, you try, why don't you try reading your Bible a bit more? Why don't you try serving a little bit more? Why don't you try fighting your sin a little bit more? Why don't you try, you know, these are commands that are given to us. If God has delivered you from the corruption that is in this world through its loss, if God is at work in you, this is how he's going to be at work in you. When you say, Spirit of God, work in me, Spirit of God, help me to be what you want me to be, it's going to look like this. Well, I have faith, I believe, all right, let's, let's go, let's build this new man. Are you going to, let's, let's put them together. So if you're working on a, a model or something, and uh, I used to build these uh, models, and sometimes they would be of, of, of people or 
monsters. I used to like to make monster models. So, uh, you know, but you'd say, all right, I got to add a head. I got to add an arm. Got to add the torso. Got to add the legs. Got to add the feet. Got to add the surroundings. And when you add all of that together, you make the thing you're trying to make. And what does a robust Christian life look like? It's inward and it's outward. It's fighting sin and pursuing holiness and deepening in the knowledge of God. It's a life of faith and a life of dependence and a life among God's people. It's a life of affection and service and love. That's what it looks like. And the point of what Peter's going to say is, when you live this way, when your life is not a contradiction to what you read in your Bible, When you're not constantly looking at this and then looking and comparing yourself in the mirror and saying so much of this is absent. It's not even being pursued. I'm not even making an attempt. And then you want to have a robust assurance. And Peter's going to make the comment here now, or he's going to comment that those who pursue these things put themselves in the way of a joyful Walk with the Lord. Keach's Catechism in question 40 says, What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? This is what we're talking about, sanctification. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, that's God's work, for us, adoption, which shows his heart toward us, and sanctification, his work in us, are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace and perseverance therein to the end. One of the things I learned, maybe my first year in seminary, so this is 1986, so 37 years ago, right? Is that what that that works out to be? Was Pastor Martin saying to us in our ministerial training that our job is to help our people get to heaven in the best shape possible. Help them to get to heaven in the best shape possible. Now again, can we get to heaven without assurance? Most certainly. But does it lighten the load? Does it aid us in our time of turmoil and hardship? When you get news that's heartbreaking, and to be able to face that trial with the knowledge, Lord, I know you love me. I know you're for me. Rather than thinking through all the ways, well, is it because I did this? Is it because I did that? Is it because I feel, is it because of this sin and that sin? So hope you see the difference that comes when you're striving to walk in integrity with a good conscience before God. It aids us in our turmoil and hardship. Brethren, we live in a world when we do not know what a day will bring forth. And we are told we can't boast of tomorrow. But you know what? There are things we can boast in. About doing a series on this sometime. We can boast in the cross. We can boast knowing that He is the Lord and we understand what kind of God He is. We can boast in His love and we can say to hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword, You can't separate me from the love of God in Christ. 
We can boast in his love and the fact that we are inseparable from it. So what is the fruit that comes from laboring in our faith? What benefit do we get to enjoy if, being rooted in the love of God, we pursue those things that are pleasing to him? Well, Peter states it both positively and negatively. He says in verse 8, For if these things are yours and abound, that is, it's not like, uh, I got knowledge. Yeah. Keep going. I read that book. Read another one. I read my Bible once. Read it again. I listened to sermons. Listen to some more. You know, you, you can abound in these things. I, I think I'm about as holy as I want to be. No. <laughs> Keep pursuing, right? Listen to what he says. If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things, that is, lacks virtue and self-control and perseverance and brotherly affection and love, he who lacks these things, he's not going to say, well, you're just not converted. He's not going to say that. But he's going to say this, you are short-sighted even to blindness, and you have forgotten, he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. I have a vivid memory of being an 18-year-old sitting on a bench on what was called Faculty Row at the old Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina, with my Bible reading these words. And I was fixating on this expression that if you do these things, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I remember various people that passed by said, hey, let me read something to you. And, and with various people through that night, I had this discussion. And, and, and what he's saying is this, and what he's getting at is that this is a possibility. It's possible to have a knowledge of Jesus Christ. To know who he is, even to be saved by him. To have for your sins forgiven and to be going to heaven and yet have a largely barren, unproductive, fruitless life. Now listen, if heaven is your only goal, and by that I mean not going to hell is your only goal. Because heaven may not be all that interesting, it's just hell is very unappealing. So I don't want to go to hell. I'm hoping to make it to heaven. And can I have just enough of Jesus? What is the bare minimum of Jesus to get to heaven? What's the bare minimum of effort and labor on my part that will still end me up in heaven? Now, what he's saying is that, look, if you will pursue these things, 
Knowledge of God, self-denial, putting your sin to death, growing in the knowledge of who Christ is, loving others, serving others. Your Christian life is not going to be barren and unfruitful. It's not. And some of you, that may, I hope that's an encouragement, because some of you I know very much, you want to be useful in the kingdom. You want your life, as it were, to matter. You want it to count. You want others to be bettered by you. You want the kingdom to grow. You want to reach sinners. You want to help saints along the way. Well, here is, here are some practical things that we can do and add to our life. Well, I'm not doing that. Well, if I started to do that and say, and my, look, I, I don't, do any of you want to be unfruitful or barren? Well, maybe you're saying, well, of course not. I just don't want to have to work for it. I, I want to be that. I want to have that fruit, but I don't want to cultivate the garden. I want to be able to run fast without having to run to start with. That's the idea. And again, it is possible to get to heaven and yet to have lived a life that is largely barren, unproductive, and fruitless. Little joy, little communion, little growth, little zeal, little love, little compassion, little, if any, witness, little robust fellowship, little hope, little enjoyment of the love of God that spills over to others, all thoughts inward, a shrinking, barren, dusty life. And we say, well, how are they saved? Well, because salvation is not of works, it's by grace. But there's, a law, there's a, all the difference in the world between being content to be a lifelong ember that needs to be blown on in order to keep it going and being a flame. What he's saying is this, a fruitful life can be cultivated... But in order for it to be, but in order for that, it must be cultivated. It must be pursued. You must want it enough to fight your sin. You must want it enough to order your days to pursue it. Can you carve out time to read and meditate? To deny yourself? To open your heart, open your home to love and to serve? Can you learn what it is to have patience and virtue? Is your faith barren? The issue he says as he compares people in the church, as it were, people he believes need a constant reminder of these things. And again, something he's committed. Peter, as a good pastor here, is committed uh, to reminding them because he knows his time is short. And he says, listen, folks, I'm going to keep harping on these things. You know it. I I don't think I've said anything tonight that anybody's like, well, I never, ever, ever thought about that. You mean I can grow if I, I I never, well, but listen, sometimes we need to be confronted with this afresh. You may have heard them before, and Peter can say this, and I can say this. I preached it to you before, and I will say it that as long as God gives me breath, I am determined that I will keep stirring you up. And the issue here for, for Peter 
And if you're struggling here, this may be the issue for you, is that some may have forgotten the gospel. Because if you're thinking ultimately that Christ isn't worth the effort, it's really what we're saying. His kingdom's not worth the effort. Well, if you're thinking that way, you've forgotten something. You have forgotten the wonder of being forgiven. You have brought yourself into the place where you've forgotten the gospel, forgotten what's happened to you. You've gotten to your, yourself to the point where grace is no longer amazing. And there's much I could say about that. We sing it's amazing, but do we feel like it's amazing? You've forgotten the wonder of being forgiven. And can that happen? Yes. It, it, yes. Have you forgotten the magnitude of the sins that he covered? Have you forgotten the way in which your sins were taken away? Do you have a hope here tonight? Your sins, all your sins have been forgiven. Do you remember how big they were? Do you remember how wretched they were? And do you remember who came to die for them? Who took on flesh and blood for you? And who agonized on the cross so that you could be forgiven? We forget the magnitude of our sins, forget the way in which our sins were taken away, and we forget the debt of love we owe. We forget what it is to meditate on grace, and out of that meditation say, I will be whatever you want me to be. And so in order to make progress, sometimes like in a game, you know, when you're playing a board game or something, and it's like, well, you got to go back to the first square. Well, can't I just mess up and start? Well, sometimes you've got to go back. At least in this sense, you've got to go back to the beginning. Because this is the same counsel that Jesus gave to the loveless church, isn't it? Remember? Remember the first works? Repent and do, or else I will come quickly. Isn't it profound to think that the greatest impotence to labor is a grace in which there is no labor? Grace, which is the antithesis of works, is actually the greatest motivation to works when we understand the gospel. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than, than, them all, than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. I loved much because I was forgiven much. And the knowledge that he had mercy on me, and listen again, if we're going to have a contest here, that he had more mercy on me than he had on you, or whatever. And if you ultimately win that argument, and you can ultimately stand up and say, of all the people in this church, he has had the most mercy on me. Well, then he says, well, then, it will be, you know, the answer ought to be, it's the one who's laboring most abundantly. Who's the one who is the most forgiven? It's the one who loves the most. Isn't that the logic of our, our Lord? Again, there's no contradiction. Abundant labor flowing from abundant grace. Forgiven much, love much. And so, child of God, if you've grown flat... If you're on the treadmill of faith, 
My first counsel is not add this, add that. It's go back. Just go back to the cross and see how much love you've been shown. Meditate afresh on the mountain of sin covered by an overabundance of his grace. And from that, the re-energizing of our life and our love, because he has so loved me, from that faith, diligently add virtue to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and then perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. If these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time together and do pray that you would, by your grace and mercy, uh, work these things uh, deep into our hearts. Uh, Aid us unto that end, Father, that uh, knowing what you have done, knowing the greatness of your love, that we may pursue Christ with greater vigor. We ask these things in his matchless name. Amen.